Welcome back to the Modern Cop Podcast. Joining me today uh, remotely, Dr. Dara Rampersad of uh, Blue Paz, which is a uh, sort of a first responder uh, mental health organization. Um, Dr. Dara, I, I've met him uh, from trainings at my own agency uh, out here in Arizona. Extremely knowledgeable guy. His, uh, his resume is quite impressive. I would say that if you were to print it out, you probably need one of those scrolls that Santa Claus has of all the good little boys and girls around. Um, and it's just going to go on for, for days and days and days. Uh, Dr. Dar is a, a first responder and forensic psychologist uh, licensed out of Arizona and Hawaii. Um, he's a, a CIT crisis intervention team uh, coordinator, um, uh, is trained in uh, critical incident stress management, uh, FBI crisis negotiation, uh, he's a uh, professional counselor licensed out of the state of Colorado. Um, uh, he owns uh, Blue Paz First Responder Services. Uh, he's helped start the world's first hospital-based CIT program. Um, he's he's training executive leadership programs at the Naval Postgraduate School. Uh, truly is just an amazing life that you've led uh, uh, thus far, uh, Dr. Dara, and, and a life of service to those who are themselves in service. So thank you, sir, for joining me today. Hey, thanks, Kevin. I appreciate being here, man. Uh, so just a couple questions to get started so that folks can get to know you. Um, uh, you can have a drink with anybody, living or dead. Who is it, and what are you drinking? Uh, such a tough question, man. Uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, I, I would, the answer would be in short, my mom, uh, she died in 2002, so 20 years ago. And, uh, I would love to be able to share with her these successes that I've had, um, uh, that she helped to create. Uh, you know, she, she opened up opportunity for, for my sister and myself, uh, in just immeasurable ways. And I'd like to, to show her that it paid off you know, in terms of her love and time and investment. Um, so I think that that would be the most meaningful stuff. Uh, as far as the drink goes, I don't really drink that much. So uh, I prefer to have food. She and I were foodies. Uh, so we'd probably uh, have some boiled corn or something, you know, just, you know, w whatever we ate, man, it'll be, it'll be nice just to share a meal with her. Yeah. And, and sit down and chat, you know. I'd also like to tell her about, you know, so many things happen in 20 years, you know, like it'll be nice to spend that half an hour, you know, showing her my child, you know, she never had a chance to meet all of those things. I, I suppose at the core of it, the value is family. So, so that's, uh, that's what it would be about. I like it, man. I like it. I have to imagine, uh, though I, I, uh, I did not know your mother that she would be extremely proud of the work that you've done. Um, uh, just, you know, here and, and in Hawaii and Colorado, really across the whole country as well. Um, uh, truly some amazing things. And, and we're going to get into it as well with, with your, your CIT programs, um, and, and what you did for Maui County out in Hawaii, uh, out in, uh, Hawaii, excuse me, and what you do locally too, for first responders in Arizona. Um, uh, it tr truly is, uh, again, I, I cannot say enough how awesome Dr. Dara is, um, at, like I said, with the, with the work that he's done. Um, but all right. So, uh, a good meal with mom. I like it, man. This very wholesome answer. Uh, I can certainly appreciate that. It is, it is nice to take a break from the, uh, uh, oh, I'd have whiskey with, or I'd have, uh, you know, tequila with, or a beer with it. Good, 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 wholesome answers, man. I like it. Um, 
I, I already know the answer to this one because it is a short answer. Uh, but if you would uh, speak on it a little bit, uh, my mm-hmm. next question to people is always, what books are you currently reading? And you have a uh, kind of a unique answer. I do. You know, it's, it's so funny. You know, I've never been much of a reader. Um, ever since, you know, obviously going through school my entire life, I've seen books as being a chore uh, because I've had to study and it's just studying, studying, studying. So when I read, I read for critical analysis of books. And so I, I seldom find enjoyment out of reading, you know, for fun. So, you know, so I dedicate my time to doing experiential things with my with my family. Uh, spending time doing things as opposed to sitting down. Um, even TV, like, you know, back in the day, I used to watch a lot more TV, stress management kinds of, you know, just relaxation stuff. Now my wife and I watch a couple programs a night, but it's not really a priority to, to sit around. We have so much stuff that we do. And uh, and I have so many things I'm involved with that I don't really dedicate time to sitting down and reading. But I do believe that I wish that I was a prolific reader. I wish that, you know, that I had, uh, you know, that dedication towards it. I think it's great, you know, and I urge all kids to be able to read. I think it's fantastic. It's it's a great, uh, great thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. I am a, I'm, I'm a voracious reader myself, but I do, you hit on it a little bit. I kind of giggle a little bit at, uh, uh, you get like cops and firefighters and, and we, come home and we want to uh, just de-stress after a day, you know, dealing with some of the stuff that we deal with. And you may have seen, uh, you know, a death, a dismemberment, injury, uh, domestic violence calls, really terrible, terrible things. And what do you do when you come home? You throw on the most violent war movie that you can find, (laughs) or you read a thriller book or something along those lines to, uh, to quote unquote, (laughs) de-stress. So I don't don't know what that says about us. I'm sure you could pick that one apart if (laughs) given enough time. Yeah, right. Or you're playing some violent video games like Call of Duty. Exactly. Or yeah. You know what I would like to do after uh, after you know a week of potentially losing my life? I'd like to go and play a video game where I'm going <laughs> to lose my life. <laughs> so <laughs> again, there's there's some conversations there. There's every psychologist in the uh, in the world right now is going. Yes, tell me more about that. And so. <laughs> Uh, my uh, my last little icebreaker question before we really get into into the weeds of uh, of who you are is that uh, you can go forward or backwards ten years for a, uh, a thirty minute conversation with yourself. Which direction do you go, and what are you going to say? So tough. Uh, I would have to say that I would go forward because the past is the past, and so you know I'm not going to dwell on that stuff to where we are now. But I think. I would like to go forward, speak to myself 10 years from now, to just kind of check in and make sure that everything is okay. Number one, am I alive, right? Fair uh, point. Yeah, it's, a good, it's a good thing to want to know. <laughs> and, and then, uh, if not, what could we do to prolong life? And, uh, and what steps could I take to, um, to, to, to be better for the future? Um, because I think that that's kind of the journey that, that I'm on, is how do I make every day more meaningful battle and hopefully be able to help you know many more people throughout the course of the 10 years that will be towards the future what will blue paths look like you know um what will my life look like personally professionally um you know those things i mean i I suppose it's kind of narcissistic but you know to kind of figure out how you can navigate towards becoming better in the future but at the same time i think that 
it's probably more productive to focus on the future than it would be the past. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you bring up a good point, and I've talked about it with a couple other guests when I bring this question up, is that the past is the past. Um, and and sometimes we need to be reminded of that. I just just last night was watching a, a, a TV show, um, and my wife came in and was asking me about it, and I sat there and, and was kind of like, you know, I wonder if instead of door A, if I'd gone through door B, you know, 10 years ago. Um, and I was like, and I kind of always wonder what would happen. And, and my wife kind of looked at me and I realized in saying that it's kind of a jackass thing for me to say, because if I'd gone a different path, I wouldn't have my wife. I wouldn't have my son, right? I wouldn't have the opportunities I've had thus far. So I'm with you there. Uh, the, the past is the past. Just leave it there. Um, you know, we, I was talking with, uh, um, Kristen and Ursula to a guest that I had a, a while back and, and we concluded that, you know, a lot of people might look at the past and go, Oh, I would have really liked to have, avoided, you know, a, a, a relationship. But the fact mm -hmm. of the matter is that that failed relationship, whatever it may have been relationship with, with, uh, uh, you know, a, a romantic interest or a job or whatever the case may be, that failed relationship led you to where you are today. So, so, true. so I, I like so it, man, I will, uh, uh, I will agree with you on, on moving forward and just uh, kind of seeing, seeing what I can do uh, 10 years from now, what can I come back and implement to, to move things along and, and make the future that much better for, uh, myself and my family. Very good. I like it. Um, if you would give us kind of an intro on, on, uh, how Dr. Dara came to be, who, who are you, you know, in, in a nutshell type of thing. Uh, I, I I'm going to think of myself as a very simple man. You know, I, I don't require much. I don't feel like I require much. Um, I, I think about my friend who was a probation officer on Maui many years ago. He and I had a conversation. His name is Ron Balayan. And Ron said to me, he said, Zoro, in my life, I try to help as many people as I can, as much as I can, as long as I can. And that stuck with me. It resonated with me. Uh, even before Blue Paz was created, uh, it resonated with me that, you know, how could I, how could I give of myself? How, how could I, provide service for people and, and take care of people as much as I can. Uh, I've been doing that for years. I mean, you know, the mental health field, I've been in it for about 25 years plus and in various capacities, administration, providing direct service to people with lived mental illness, um, you know, just trying to make things better throughout all of the places that I had been. But when he said that statement, I realized it was a purpose. It was almost like a mission statement, you know, for what, for what I wanted to do. And, and I hope that other people uh, could get infected by that too, because I think that the world definitely would be better if we were all doing that same mission, you know? Um, so that's simplistically, you know, what I kind of think about. I think about that, that thing almost daily. And, and every time I try to help somebody through the work that I'm doing, um, hopefully they feel that love coming through. You know, I want them to feel that care and compassion, that kindness and that genuineness that, um, that I try to try to put across every day and try to live that not only professionally, but with my family, uh, you know, my wife and our daughter, my daughter, um, we, we will always fall short. You know, we can't be, you know, uh, Mayberry every single day. Right. Uh, but we could try you know, and, and, and try to do better than we did before. It doesn't mean you're not going to have blocks. It doesn't mean you're not going to have arguments. But uh, at the same time, 
you know, what did I learn from it and how could I improve, right? Um, so I suppose at the core of me is really a family man, uh, somebody who is simple. Uh, you know, I, I'm talking about as simple as going to Walmart and buying T-shirts. Like I, I like, you know, like $3 T-shirts, you know, for undershirts. It's, you know, I, I feel happy. Just I don't have to spend a lot of money to do stuff. Uh, um and I'm just very, I'm very blessed, man. I'm very lucky, you know. I get to do something that I choose every single day. I don't know many people that could say that, you know. I, I choose to to work with people that I want to work with. I, I created that for myself because that's something that I wanted to, to see happen, uh, where I, I get to build, I get to create. Uh, you know, as I said before, I may not be a voracious reader like you are. I, I may not be a great artist, uh, but my art is in the creation of relationships, is in the creation of hope, is in the creation of building what I'm doing, which is to work with first responders, uh, always seeing the, having the ability to see past the uniform, and I just connect with people. Um, I've, I've been very fortunate in that respect to have that relationship ability to build with people. Well, and you talk about seeing past the uniform. I mean, you're you're a huge proponent and indeed a founding member of, of crisis intervention training, especially here in the state of Arizona. And CIT was the first sort of specialty training that I had um, when I'd finished field training. And that is probably the training that I used m- and continue to use even in my current role as a detective. Um, that is what I think what I use the most. I mean, I was, you go into work every day and you, you may have an op, you know, an opportunity to, uh, to do some, some high speed, you know, super fun stuff, right? We drive Mach two with our hair on fire. Hey, I might get to drive license sirens today. You may be forced into a situation uh, where you have to draw your firearm out, but I can guarantee you that you're going to have to talk to people every day. Um, and not everybody needs, needs some sort of heavy handed approach. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a huge proponent in, in CIT training and, and what it's offered uh, uh, myself, as well as the people that we interact with and truly being able to live that, that motto of help as many people as you can for as long as you can. Um, what, uh, what ultimately led you down the, but you said you get to do, you know, you get to do what you love, right? And there's that old saying, you do what you love, never work a day in your life. What mm-hmm. led you, what led you down that path? How did, how did you come to be Dr. Dara? Hmm. Uh, so my my mom was the primary breadwinner of our family, right? So uh, my dad took care of things at home and, and helped us along the way. Um, but my dad also battled with alcoholism for for his entire my entire life, you know, I should say. Um, and I'm going to be 48 next week, so you know, so it was a long time he had battled with it. He died in 2005. Um, that. You know, we talk about a lot of times in, in law enforcement and in first responder world, we talk about resiliency. How do we build resiliency? How do we get grit? How do we have grit? How do we develop grit? You know, what is grit? You know, pushing past where you felt like you couldn't go, but yet still you have the ability to get there, to, to succeed. And um, I feel like I developed that grit from having a dad with alcoholism, you know, from seeing my mom coming home at seven o'clock, eight o'clock, working very hard every day, um, you know, I think that 
those things were very formative for me growing up. Uh, having a, a very close relationship with my sister, you know, her and I depending on each other. Um, and then having good role models in my family. You know, I have an uncle and an aunt. Uh, I have many of them, but my uncle and aunt that live in Florida, for instance, I remember we would go to visit them. He was a dermatologist. He's retired now and she worked in his practice. And every time we would go to visit them in Florida from Trinidad, where I grew up in the Caribbean, um, I would see them working until two, three in the morning doing paperwork, billing, all this stuff. It didn't make sense to me what they were doing back then. I didn't know what insurance was and all of this stuff. You know, I was a kid, you know, but I remember seeing them work really hard. And every night before my aunt went to bed, no matter how tired she was, and she would get up at six. So they weren't getting very much sleep, four or five hours sometimes per night. Um, uh, she would set the table for breakfast the following morning. She would put out the placemats, the cereal bowls, the cereal, right? She would always prepare for the next day. So I, I tell them this still because they're still alive, and I tell them, you know, what a great influence they had in my life, you know, to be able to. I had really solid role models in my family, um, and and being able to, to look at that stuff and emulate it. I work very hard. I, I work very hard. I have a few different jobs that I do, and um, but I try to give that my all and, and you know, I, I do try to maintain sleep because I do believe that sleep is important. Uh, but, you know, it's a, sometimes it's a luxury that uh, you sacrifice at times, right, you know, to make to make things work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sleep is, is a critical component of that resiliency. Um, and it's certainly easier to, uh, I mean, you, you talk about having grit and being able to push through things. Certainly easier to, to push through a tough day if you had a decent night's sleep, you know, the night before. But you're not always going to have that opportunity, right? I mean, my agency, we say like, hey, you need to have eight hours between between shifts. Well, that, okay, um, that doesn't always work. It's very, it's a very good theory. Uh, we, yeah. we love to put it into practice. Most of the time we get to, but yeah. sometimes it's just not going to happen, right? I mean, there, there were days where, you know, supposed to get off at, at midnight 30 type of thing. And you're holding over till four or five 30 in the morning. Um, uh, you know, you're, you're going home at the same time as the graveyard officers, and then you're coming mm -hmm. back, you know, six hours later type of thing. Um, mm -hmm. so it, you know, it, it's, it's going to happen. What, uh, uh, what ended up, uh, being the catalyst for, for leaving Trinidad and coming out of the, uh, out of the Caribbean and, and into the States? Yeah. So, um, I was born in, we were, my sister and I were born in Toronto, in Canada. So after there's a, 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 back then anyway, in Trinidad, there was a certain exam that would determine if you would go into university or not uh, in Trinidad. And, uh, and I'm royally messed up those exams. And so, uh, you know, I had no chance of being able to get into university in Trinidad. So it was a hard choice at 17. I had to decide move away from my family of origin to go live with my uncle and aunt. Very grateful for them in Toronto, um, and they took me in with my cousins to the to their house to be able to finish high school, uh, the last grade, and then get into university in Canada. So the opportunity was just a lot greater uh, in Canada to be able to make that move from Trinidad to Canada. And once I got into university, then things started to flow. You know, then. I found psychology in my second year because I was being pushed into doing, you know, like most uh, Indian families, anybody who's Indian could relate to this of origin, is you're being pushed to be a doctor, a dentist, a lawyer, an engineer, right? That's it. There were no other professions you could choose, right? 
And so my route that I was being forced on was medicine. But frankly, I didn't have the aptitude for it, you know, or the discipline to be able to do it or the desire to, to fulfill that. So when I found, uh, like, so two years pre-med and undergrad, which were, I, I think, an epic failure because I was being forced through this stuff. But finding psychology in my third year or my loss of my second year was really a saving grace for me because it just clicked. Everything made sense. Um, my dad had his undergrad in psychology, so I don't understand why it would have been such a big deal anyway, you know, but uh, it, it, it really, it fit. And and so, it, it, yeah, that's, that's what led to the move from Trinidad. And, and once I left, actually, I'm, you know, shoot, I've been away longer now than I've been in Trinidad, you know, I've, I've been in the States and Canada for 30 years now. So a lot of time has passed, you know. I can only imagine, uh, and and you were born there, so maybe it wouldn't be too big of a deal, but to leave uh, Trinidad, which is arguably one of the most beautiful locations in the Caribbean, and it's very nice and warm, and you got the ocean everywhere, to go to Toronto, where it snows. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've experienced depression. Let's put it that way. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, looking out on, on your birthday in April and staring outside and being uh, snowed in uh, in Toronto. There were a lot of times that were in front, I'll tell you, adjusting at 17, leaving that safety net of where I had come from with my mom, dad, everybody else, you know. Um, it was tough. It was really tough. But, you know, thank goodness for my uncle and aunt and my cousins that took me in. You know, they they really... At least it made it a lot softer blow, even though it was harder to be away from home. You know, I was very fortunate. Sure, you still you still had family, and 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 uh, that was you know probably one of those those times in your life where you look back and and again you talk about grit and resiliency, and you had to to learn about both of those and and really put them into uh, uh, put them into practice and implement them. So uh, after you uh, after you end up graduating university and and like you said, you found psychology. What were your next steps? Did you know that you wanted to get into like the psychology of first responders, or, or did your path kind of just take you elsewhere? So you know, and there's a saying in in psychology and, and even in in for therapists, and we say that we're wounded helpers. Well, you could imagine uh, the, the field that I wanted to get into was to learn why did my dad drink and how could I prevent that, right? And so I thought I was <coughs> I was going to go into um, substance abuse counseling, so to try to understand that more, and and I did, and I, I, I dabbled in doing that stuff for a while um, to figure it out. In fact, I even ran prison groups for substance abuse folks. I used to work in prisons for many years on the mental health side of things. Um, and, and so I, I pursued that, but then things change. I mean, over time, you know, like towards my master's degree at Michigan state, I started to think to myself, well, I never had Trinidad doesn't have school counselors or grade counselors that doesn't exist as a concept. So I didn't really have any kind of, of vocational counseling to see what I wanted to be, you know, um, here in the States, we're so lucky because from an early age, kids could, could get exposed to so many avenues of things they could go into, you know, um, but we didn't have that. So then I thought I'll be an academic counselor. So then I, I, I figured out, I'd look into some of that stuff. Um, but then realized it wasn't a passion area of mine, uh, but prison work was. I really, I always felt, because my dad used to work in the prisons in Trinidad. Um, he used to um, go in and give people last rites and stuff. He was a Hindu priest. Um, and so, 
I thought that prison work would just be the coolest thing ever, being able to go into those facilities and help. And it was. Honestly, it was. It was a huge privilege to be able to go into a facility where Joe Public could not go into to be able to touch these lives and to help people, you know, uh, who were most vulnerable. And and how do I make an impact in the community to, to prevent crime if I'm not trying to help these people to become better citizens when they come out, right? And so at least they were going to get some sort of therapy and help. Uh, and so I ran sex offender groups, domestic violence groups, anger management groups, uh, economic and property crime groups, uh, substance abuse groups uh, in and out of prison uh, for, for people who were doing reentry. And uh, and I felt like it, it, it clicked. It made a lot of sense. So that's when there is a something called a sequential intercept model for criminality. And that's where I started to realize I did community mental health. I worked in various settings for private practices, or not my private practice at the time, but in private practices. And then I worked in the prison. So where else in that model could I put myself to be able to be of service? Uh, well, I, for years and years before the sequential intercept model was changed to a stage zero, I had said CIT has to be on that map. We have to do pre-booking jail diversion. We need to be able to look at, at families of origin that are the first line of defense. And how do we help these families of origin? Uh, for specifically our first responders, you know, first responder psychology came later on for me. Uh, initially, we were doing, I was just doing a lot of stuff to help the severely mentally ill population to be able to get back on track and to, to live better lives. But I realized that when first responders would res respond to these people in the field, if the first responder was unhealthy, if they were not, you know, mentally well, how could they provide good service to people that needed the help? And so that truly was the segue and the branch for me to step into the first responder world to say, we can help our community even better if the people serving our community were feeling well, if they were doing, if they were doing well. And so, uh, I suppose, you know, the end user never really changed. The end user is Joe Public living with severe mental illness, is a person in crisis in the community. Um, but the way that we do it is by working with each other to be able to make ourselves a better version of ourselves to, to help those people, you know. Because the most vulnerable people in the population, I think, we need to focus on, you know, to, to be able to help out. Yeah, I mean, it's no longer this sort of Spartan society of old, where if somebody doesn't fit in, you pitch them off a cliff and go, go, go try again. You can't, you can't do that anymore. It's it's frowned <laughs> frowned upon uh, yeah. in, in in most aspects of society. But you bring up a good point. I mean, I've often equated law enforcement to, I mean, police departments are businesses, and they provide a service. The service they provide is. Uh, uh, is the enforcement of laws by way of their police officers. Um, mm -hmm. And if the officer uh, is not in a right, you know, their headspace is all messed up for whatever reason, you know, stuff at home, stuff at work, uh, exhaustion, mm -hmm. substance abuse, whatever the case may be, uh, then it's going to affect that end product, right? The, the product mm -hmm. delivered to the consumer, i.e. the public. Um, 
and and uh, you know we we saw it. I th- I would say that you saw it on a much larger scale than I did, right? Because I I have my my little three foot world as it as it were, and your three foot world is just that much bigger than than mine because you see and interact with all these different agencies. But in 2020, after this national narrative pushing for defund the police and all cops are bastards and this, that, and the other thing. And then, and you've got the, uh, the rioting taking place. Uh, my own agency had, a you know, we had some serious, uh, critical incidents that were very taxing on uh, everybody involved. And, and I can look back at myself and by the end of 2020, I was, I was done. I was spent. I, you know, you can only hit the gym so many times to to pull stress out of your body. Um, I mean, we were we were going to the bar at the end of every week. We were in the gym for two or three hours a day before a shift. And even even with those coping mechanisms, healthy or otherwise, uh, uh, I, I don't necessarily uh, recommend you go to the bar as a healthy coping mechanism, quote unquote. Um, but uh, but you can tell that it just starts to to wear on you. You're not able to sort of fill that tank all the way back up at, at you know, it, it gets harder and harder and harder. So, um, I mean, you know, good on you for, for having the, the foresight to, to see it, you know, from that angle. Um, I would, I would say possibly before a lot of people, um, did. And I, I it was brought up in my CIT class. Um, and I, I can't, you might have you might have been there. It was that was it was 2018. It was quite some time ago. Um, uh, but you also you know crisis intervention training. You get the cops that that they just don't want to do it. That's not who they are as as people. They can sit there and they can deescalate and they can have a conversation with somebody. But the CIT model is not necessarily their way of operating. And one thing that stuck with me is that you know, they asked at the beginning of the class, who's here because you were told to be here and, you know, five or 10 hands go up and the CIT instructors made it very clear that they don't want people to be there when it's not voluntary, because again, coming back to a business consumer, you know, sort of model, the, the product that you are providing is degraded by the fact that you have officers attending this training who don't want to be there when in fact you and I know damn good and well that you can find cops who, who, uh, enjoy, um, who enjoy the, the training. What, what sort of, uh, you know, seeing, seeing this, uh, you, you have kind of your light bulb moment. Um, what challenges were you facing in trying to, to implement these programs? Oh, such good questions. Um, so, when in, in Maui, for instance, so as I started uh, the CIT program, helped to start it in Maui. So that's in all of Hawaii, our Maui Police Department was the first one to start CIT. And it was a group effort, of course. I mean, you know, it took uh, myself uh, bringing the idea to the chief uh, and then having the support of, of uh, Sergeant, who retired, Surrender Singh. Uh, we had uh, really key people, uh, James Fletcher, who was a lieutenant at the time. We didn't have the the clout at first to be able to, to get this across. And I remember a conversation with a chief who uh, is a friend of mine, uh, but he said, what happens if we start this program, but we don't have enough people to respond when people are calling for a CIT officer? And I remember saying to him, it's better to start and not have somebody available than to say that you didn't start the program because you were afraid of liability of not having someone available. And it just, took off from that point. He said, tell me what you need, we'll make it happen. His name is Gary Abuta, he's a good friend of mine. Uh, and Gary was so supportive, 
uh, and then when we tried to get you know other programs in place, uh, he was very supportive, and so he realized that you know what we were doing was going to be very meaningful for the community in Hawaii. So that was one one barrier, and I've heard other departments talk about that. Well, what happens from a lie? Everybody talks about liability. Liability. If we don't have this this thing where we have enough people, you'll build to that point. Uh, but the solution is not a train all model. You know, this is I am a hundred percent aligned with you. You know, the voluntold population. I've seen three maybe voluntold people who were able to gain significant insight into themselves coming through the program. But the truth is, is uh, we need to treat CIT like it's a specialty uh, unit just like we would for SAU, SWAT, SRT, CAU, VCU, any of these units, DRE, you know, we can't take a human being that doesn't fit that profile and push them through that, that hole. Uh, because they, and I've seen it, I've seen it in Las Vegas Police Department, I've seen it in uh, other departments that do a train on model, that the people that respond do not represent CIT to what CIT really should be like you and I would represent CIT if we went to a call and the consumer would say, wow, that was a CIT officer. They were fantastic. And versus somebody who comes in and then they say, I'm a CIT officer, but they do not affect the things of a CIT officer. And then all of a sudden the consumer, they, they speak just like cops speak. You know, you, you know, as well as I do, the cops, being a cop is like being in a high school locker room, right? Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> you have the law, you have all of it. That's just so petty. Uh, well, consumers will do this too. They'll say, well, I'm not going to call for a CIT officer because the last one that we called was awful. They were rude to me. They made me feel like I was a disease, etc., etc." Uh, we cannot afford to have that sort of response to people that, that need our help. Um, and uh, honestly, at the core of all of this stuff, we all do customer service. You know, uh, we are a customer service industry. Uh, in law enforcement is customer service based stuff. You know, some customers need to go to jail. Some customers need to have, you know, force applied to be able to comply. Um, but in the CIT world compared to the mental health side of the world, uh, I, I think that, you know, I always teach our guys, uh, we're not dealing with people. Uh, we should, we should not deal with people. We shouldn't deal with problems. You know, we shouldn't deal with people as problems. What we, really hopefully would do would be able to start seeing, you know, I could assist this person, I could help this person, I could work with this person. It's a lot more powerful in terms of the words that we use. And you could assist somebody all the way to jail. Uh, you know, you could assist somebody in, in, in a majority of ways. But if we get stuck on this dealing with, honestly, it, it tears at the psyche of the person who is dealing with things because it wears you down, it erodes you over time, you end up getting burnt out in your job. You happen to put up with people and put up with things all day long. Ten hour shift is a long time to deal with things. And and I think that's, you know, that's a lot of reasons why we end up becoming frustrated. And I don't deal with cops in my job. I work with them. I help them, you know, and, and so that's why I find so much meaning in what I do. And that and you, you've hit on a, a few key points. I mean, the the words that we use matter, right? We don't want to come across as having to deal with people. There are people yeah. there, like you said, there are, there are customers at work that we're dealing with. Um, but the, the majority of people, when, <clears throat> when somebody is at their wits end, uh, be it for their own mental health crisis or a loved one's mental health crisis, 
and they don't know who to call, right? Because sure, you've you've got mobile crisis teams um, who themselves are are underfunded and understaffed, and you've got you know you look at the city of Phoenix, five hundred eighty six square miles for the entire metro area, and for some of these privately contracted crisis mobile crisis teams, like they're they're coming from the opposite side of that five hundred eighty six square miles, and it's going to take them a while to get there. So okay, who do we have next? Well, we can't necessarily send the fire department if there's a propensity for violence. Uh, I guess we can send the police. And so again, and you hit the point that the train all model of CIT may not actually be appropriate when you look at it truly for what it is, which is a specialty. I mean, you are seeing more and more agencies around the nation work to create uh, mental health teams. Them, hey, you're a police officer. Maybe you're not dressed like a patrol officer. Maybe you don't drive a, a black and white police car. You know, you drive an unmarked car and you wear, mm -hmm. you know, jeans and a t-shirt and and your vest says, you know, mental health unit on or something, something along those <laughs> lines. Um, but uh, but you're right. You you're not going to take everybody and go. Okay, I'm going to train everybody here to the SWAT standard because not everybody wants to be up at the SWAT standard, right? Not everybody no. wants. Not everybody wants to be a, you know, a, a tactical ninja SWAT sniper. Um, not everybody wants to be a motor officer. Not everybody is capable of being an undercover narcotics detective. Um, mm -hmm. you, you have got to put, it's one thing to say, Hey, we're going to train de-escalation department wide, but it is a vastly different thing to train CIT across an entire agency. So true, man. And you know, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about this analogy that I hadn't thought about before, but. It's almost like you have a heart issue and you need a cardiologist, but a general practitioner of PCP is showing up to take care of you. I don't want that. I don't want, I don't want Joe Cop or Joanne Cop to show up, right? I want somebody who's a specialist. I have a mental health crisis. Please, could I have a specialist? You know, in this case, it's somebody who's a CIT trained person, just like I would want a cardiologist for my heart condition, you know? And I think that, you know, when we start to look at it, it truly is, is that specialized. You know, CIT officers make a big difference in people's lives. They go the extra mile to follow up. They might be the person showing up to your house or calling a week later on just to check up on you. They have good hearts, you know, but the people that are doing this for the right reasons anyway, you know. Right, right. I mean, I've been on a call with a sergeant who is a CIT and CNT and, uh, uh, I mean, even I like to think that I'm a, a pretty even keeled person. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I have my days just like everybody else. But to stand out, I want to say it was like July or August here in Arizona, stand outside some dude's truck. And I watched this, sar this sergeant just talk to this guy for two or three hours. I mean, we all ended up sunburned. We were all, you know, sweating through our Kevlar vest, the whole nine yards. Uh, our feet were we're practically melting inside of our boots, right? But uh, not every cop is going to have the demeanor to do that. Not every cop is going to sit with a dude, you know, walking down the street uh, in, in nothing but his, his underwear because he's just having a rough night and he's trying to find a car to jump in front of. Um, not every cop's going to gonna sit outside of a mental health institution with a guy and, and sort of, for lack of a better words, hey, we're here, like, you know, kind of talk them, talk them the rest of the way inside, as it were, um, you know, not everybody's going to, going to want to have that conversation. Um, and, uh, you know, police departments are like families, right. Or, or, or communities. It, it does take all kinds of people. I mean, 
your your even keeled CIT officer uh, uh, may not be able to, I don't know, you know, explosively breach a door, right? You're right. But that right. Do, that doesn't mean that uh, that you all of a sudden don't need somebody who can do the breaching. You know, you you need to have that person. Uh, you know, you need to have. Uh, all of your specialists. So no, I think, you know, it's a great way of looking at it and, and your, your, uh, um, your, your comment about, uh, you know, Hey, if I have a cardiac issue, do I want a general practitioner coming up? No, not particularly. I mean, you know, that, that doesn't sound like it would go well for me. You're probably very competent at your job at, at this, at, you know, general, uh, uh, you know, medical, uh, intervention. Uh, cops are good at generally being cops, but again, specialties exist for a reason. That that sort of tip of the knife, tip of the spear type mm -hmm. of uh, type of uh, mentality there. So, what uh, I mean, as you go through and conduct your training, um, uh, I mean, you, you've mentioned that that some agencies are, are constantly, oh well, what if you know, hey, oh, I'm really concerned about liability. To me, that's kind of you're looking for an excuse at that point, because I tell people all the time, even now in my job as an investigator, hey, if it comes up in conversation, I don't just randomly throw this out there, but hey, if you're on the phone to 911 or, or you're texting non-emergency, you can request a crisis intervention officer at any point in time. If one is available, they will be provided for you. And in terms of what cops are seeing nowadays with de-escalation, cops are, you know, departments are being sued, cops are being sued. If force is applied, uh, you know, God forbid somebody's killed. I don't know any cop, truly do not know one single cop who goes to work every day hoping to shoot someone. That's not a thing. Um, but as a police officer, you have to at least try to provide some sort of de-escalation and some sort of intervention. Uh, and it's better to as you maybe have an understaffed CIT unit or, or you have sort of like my agency, which the CIT unit is sort of decentralized. It's you put, you know, CIT cops on every patrol team type of thing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but are there any other, you know, any other excuses that people are making or, or challenges that you're facing and trying to get this implemented? Or has it finally gotten to a point where now it's this snowball effect and more and more agencies are like, boom, light bulb moment. Let's do this. We, we, I think that snowball moment has reached. Uh, I think that we get requests from different agencies, different places around Arizona and other places that want to have CIT implemented into their department. The number one error that I see departments making is that, and this happens so many times, it's so frustrating to me, but it's a containment issue. The chief of police, once CIT is implemented, starts collecting statistics and starts looking at what politically uh, it does for the department. It, it, it makes the department look good because the officers do a fantastic job. Uh, and then they say, well, you know, uh, I want to train everybody. This is honestly the number one hardest thing that is tainting uh, uh, programs you know, across across the world, across the states. Let's just stick with the states. It, it taints programs because the CID program is such a powerful program. It helps so much to be able to build community, uh, you know, just outside of the departments to be able to help build resources that uh, departments get this bee in their bonnets, thinking that this is the, you know, the way to go, that we should train everybody. And I think, you know, they, they, we will see this backlash on on 
unfortunately, on train all models. Uh, it, it, I do like what you said, which is you do not have to have a centralized team for pickup orders. Uh, if that works for you, great. I think that having enough coverage per shift is important. And honestly, if I had a department that was eight people or 12 people, I might train everybody in CIT. I'm not anti, you know, if you have a coverage issue and you need somebody to, to get, you know, help with better skills, um, anybody could benefit from learning about these principles. But what are you going to do with it after, right? You could learn all day long for 40 hours, but if you don't see the point of, of being able to utilize these skills and understand that CIT is so much more than just training. It requires you to really look at a community landscape and to interact with the community, to interact with your partners, with the resources that are around. And it takes a lot of work. It's not just you sit there for four hours and you absorb information, you know. And uh, and so I think that's the hardest struggle is, is trying to convince departments. Yes, we know it's a kick-ass program. And we know that the people that are going through this program are going to represent you well. But remember, they're only doing that because you have the best of the best doing this with the skills that, that were suited for this particular type of program, you know? Um, so I think that's the hardest challenge, really, is now that the snowball is in effect, how do we contain the enthusiasm of departments to not think that they should train everybody in it? Because then you... you you, you really don't have a specialty unit. You don't have a specialty team anymore, you know? Right, right. It's There There are a handful of other examples that, that come to mind. Um, you know, hey, we're going to have – this is the greatest new tool in law enforcement. Let's have everybody do it. Um, and it just doesn't always work out. And, and you know, on the other side of that coin is uh, you can provide somebody – you know, you talk about – you can come to a class for 40 hours, but it's what you do with the information that matters, right? It's sort of that analogy of here's all your tools, but I'm not going to build the house for you, right? Yeah. It's what you do when you leave here that really counts. Are you going to take CIT and go, hey, cool, for a week, I got to uh, have a normal bank hour schedule and I got to be home for dinner with my family and all right, well, back off to swing shift or graveyards I go, um, or are you going to leave there going, hey, cool, I now have the skills and abilities and some additional resources that maybe not everybody has, and I can effect positive change upon my community by implementing these. And it may not be an overnight thing. You know, your community, it, word will spread, right? Again, it, it, it crisis intervention, de-escalation, the buzzwords of modern law enforcement. Um, that word will spread. And people will come to know that you have that crisis intervention team. But I, I, I love what you said that you lose a specialty. If you look at like uh, NYPD, right? New York City Police Department. I don't know how many officers they have. I think it's somewhere up to like 20,000 or something along those lines. 30, yeah. yeah. Uh, are you going to go and train every single one of those officers in crisis intervention? Because then you no longer have a mental health specialty you have a lot of officers trained up to a certain level when you could have taken a core group of officers. And, and, and I'm not talking about, again, everybody needs this de-escalation training that you might get at your, your annual training, uh, mm -hmm. you know, training cycle. But you take this, this core group of officers and you train them as high as you can get them. And are they mm -hmm. the, the caveat to that, even with the, you know, you look at it with 
with cops and the implement, implementation of, of tasers and these new bowler wrap things that are the new hotness. Um, you can have the world's best CIT cop who goes to every training that they can go to and they've got a positive reputation uh, within the community and within their own department. Uh, it might not work, right? You do always run that risk. Um, but, uh, but, you know, having implemented this in some place like Maui County, I mean, you know, I, I have to imagine you keep up with them to, to some extent. How is, you know, from where you started to where they are now, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about how, how Maui's doing on, on uh, the CIT work that, they're, that they've implemented. So, man, I wish I had more positive news. So I, I, my last class that I trained, I was in 2019. Then, of course, COVID, and, and I separated from the department. Uh, there was a sergeant that took over that training. Um, and so I also trained Kauai Police Department and I started their program for them. And so <clears throat> Kauai Police Department, I haven't trained there since 2019 as well, right? Because of COVID. But um, unfortunately, here's the unfortunate part. Maui County um, decided to do a train all model, which went totally against what I, when we started the program uh, and what we advised them not to do. But they've been through now this is their second chief after the first one started it and this chief is from las vegas uh, uh metropolitan police department and they came from that train all model and so they believe in doing all of their training there are a few critical errors right that is one critical error the next critical error is is that departments try to train people with the cit program in the academy now, there is a reason to not do that, but it's not spoken about enough. And people just think that the principles of CIT International are just, you know, negativistic. But there's a reason behind it. When an officer becomes an officer, you want that officer to get experience in the field. You want them to know, you know, that hair on the back of your neck that stands up when you go to certain calls. You want them to develop and to become accustomed to what that feels like so they could survive with talking about survivable skills. When you get into a gun battle, you get into a fight for your life, how are you going to survive? We don't want you thinking about CIT during this period of time. We don't want you to think about, you know, talk skills that the, not, you know what I mean, not talk skills, like everybody should know how to talk, right? Or to communicate. But these, these specialty skills should be taught really after somebody has at least a couple of years under their belt as an officer. Once they've established officer safety, they establish scene safety, they know their regulations, their general orders, their protocols that they have to follow, then learn these additional things. You know, I know very few departments that would bring somebody in within two years and make them a SWAT member. You know, very few. Uh, you have to be a pretty small department to do that, or hurting really badly for, for, for power, right, for your manpower. So same thing applies. Take your time. Don't train people in the academy. You don't know your ass from your elbow at that point in your in your career. You need to figure out what all your tools are on your belt and how to be able to communicate with people. Yes, I do get it. I think, you know, shoot, I created an eight-hour mental health tactical intervention class, right, years and years and years ago. Before mental health first aid was a thing, I created this class. It was an eight-hour class to teach officers and other first responders about mental illness and communication skills with the consumers in the field and people in crisis. And there's a de-escalation component to that, right? Well, 
you don't have to choose the mental health tactical intervention class. You have mental health first aid. You have other things that you could utilize to teach an eight-hour class. I have no problem with that. Teach people how to communicate. We need to take shit, take 16 hours. You know, teach people for 16 hours. But when it comes down to the CIT stuff, make sure you are holding that in the highest esteem, as you mentioned, Kevin, you know, to, to really hone in on people's uh, skills at that point. You know, the tip of the spear, as you said. Right. Well, and, and as if you don't already have enough when you're in the police academy, police academies are anywhere from four to six months. You're, yeah. talk, you're talking about adding an additional week of training, uh, of testing, of, uh, you know, practical skills application. Um, and I, I would agree with you. The, the academy is not the appropriate place to teach crisis intervention training. You will learn about de-escalation and you will work on communication. And you've got all of your field scenarios and whatnot, your field problems. Um, but you wouldn't teach SWAT operations in the academy. You wouldn't teach... <laughs> as I said before, you know, undercover, uh, operations in the academy. Um, you're, you're, the academy is basic training, right? It is giving you the core basic skills, those core component skills to go out and be successful at your base function as a patrol officer. And then mm -hmm. once you've, once you've really established that foundation, then you can start adding to the levels, right? I, again, mm -hmm. I come back to the, the house analogy, right? Your, your police academy is the concrete foundation and then your field training, you're sort of putting the, putting the studs up and, um, you know, you're starting to build that first floor of that house and, and you go out maybe to your first patrol team and you're realizing like, Oh, okay, this looks like a house. Now I can sort of all, you know, I can fit the doors and the windows in, but to add, you know, floor upon floor level upon level, it does, it does take time, uh, yeah. to, to implement that. No, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly with you. I, um, I do want to take, uh, take some time and, and give you the opportunity here to kind of educate me and educate the listeners on blue paths and, and what that organization does. You, you've touched on it a little bit as far as giving first responders, you know, tools with, with, uh, you know, mental health, first aid, uh, and, and, and things of that nature, but really kind of dive into to how blue paths came to be and, and what your mission is. Yeah. So, Blue Paz, uh, you know, blue before we had all the different colors of the, um, of the flag, uh, blue was kind of it, you know, it was, uh, it represented first responders. And so when I came up and, and created Blue Paz in 2016, uh, it was blue was to represent first responders and Paz is peace. Uh, you know, I also gave an homage to us being in Arizona by having Paz have AZ on the last two letters of, of Paz, you know, so. It was kind of uh, stuff that I wanted to make sure that, you know, we paid honor to where we are as well. And uh, so peace for first responders, that's what the ultimate uh, central of Blue Paz is. And how do we do that? Well, uh, obviously, therapy is part of it to making sure that our officers are the fittest uh, emotionally and mentally that they can be to do their jobs. And sometimes that requires medical retirement. Sometimes that requires things that need to protect them. You know, you being a cop is is a career, and for some people, it's just a job. Uh, I know people that do this for just a job. As it's a newer generation of people that are doing that now. You know, but if you are going to do this career, how do we get you through to twenty five years? You know, now, right? The old school way was twenty, but now it's twenty five years at least. And how do we how do we get you through? 
uh, being well for that entire time. Well, I, I want to be part of that journey. I want to, you know, I have people who are deciding that they want to apply for an academy. Uh, I have people who have paid for themselves to go through an academy, but they come for therapy from the get-go. And I think that's so impressive. I've seen that now more with the younger generation. And then as we see people through, and I work with people through post-retirement, um, and I have I have a, a good handful, at least, of people who have retired that I work with, and, and, you know, they too see value in being able to maintain their health and wellness. Um, that's some of the, the I think the uh, the anchors of Blue Paz is providing that kind of treatment. But then, you know, uh, for people that need coaching services and just kind of encouragement to be able to, to fulfill the things that are more important for them right now and present in their life, we assist with that. Uh, then I have a, the other branches doing and creating CIT programs to help people out. Um, that works really well to help communities develop. And then uh, there are a sequence of other things that go on, right? In the law enforcement world, we have OISs, office-involved shootings. Uh, so critical care is important. So being able to take care of people doing debriefings, making sure that we get in there from the earliest that we can uh, to take care of them so they prevent getting PTSD. A lot of the work that I work with is in the prevention of PTSD as well as suicide. Um, you know, we keep statistics on suicides of law enforcement. There's a, a company called Blue Health, which you you know probably, yep. and they can yep. statistics, right? Um, now they've branched off and they've done red health, and I'm sure that they'll have gold health and other things, you know, as they progress. But um, we, for, for those of us who have been tracking suicides way before these agencies existed, um, we could prevent suicides. We could prevent suicides, and and that's a lot of the things that I focus on. You know, like last year or two years ago, uh, I was tracking in COVID, that first COVID year, uh, towards the last quarter, I was involved personally in preventing about 10 to 15 suicides of officers. When you think about that and you think about other people like me that are trying to do that same thing and we're making an impact, you know, we're making an impact keeping guys alive. You know, when I, when I get text messages, I think that law enforcement are the most grateful group of, of consumers, of customers that I ever work with. Um, it is so incredible how much appreciation they feel uh, and express to you, like I've never, in all of my decades of working in mental health, I haven't really had consumers who are public, just regular public people reach out to say thank you and, you know, and I'm grateful for being alive because of the work that we've done, etc. Cops would do that. They would send, they would send text messages. They would shoot an email. They would say, you know, I'm really grateful. You know, I get these kinds of text messages, um, you know, uh, pretty often. And, and it means a lot to me. It keeps me going. You know, it keeps me motivated to keep doing what I'm doing. Uh, because getting that feedback of knowing that we have people that are still alive because of the work that we're doing, it's just very meaningful. It means, it really means a lot. And, um, you know, yeah. What do you think, uh, um, uh, to ask you that, uh, that sort of age old interview question, where do you see yourself five years from now? You know, what, what do you, what do you plan on for, for moving forward? Yeah. So what I'd like to do is, uh, I, actually, I had a, a, a goal this year of bringing on a couple of contractors to help. And so I've, I've achieved that goal of having two people join on. I have Matt Dyer and Christy Stuckwish, and they started uh, this this year with me. Um, so I'm hoping that I could help to build them up, get them doing more stuff with me. 
uh, continuing to build my team so we could help as many people as we can, as much as we can, as long as we can to fulfill that goal. And, uh, and I'm hoping in five years to maybe be up to eight practitioners that could uh, help. Um, I'm getting involved in a really cool uh, program right now. This is, this is uh, I don't know if I could speak about it publicly yet, but, um, but I'll tell you so anyway since uh, we're meeting. Um, I'll see if I could be kind of cryptic about it. I'm going to start a, a teaching and creating a program you uh, that's going to be coming up uh, to be able to teach counselors how to assist first responders to work and specialize in working with first responders. So I believe in five years we're going to have a lot of well-trained clinicians that we're going to have out in the field that will be able to provide excellent service, customer service to our first responders. And I think that this is going to be uh, revolutionary. I, we don't have any programs like that in the United States yet that, that I know of or in Canada. And so I think in all of North America, we're going to start something pretty cool here in Arizona, uh, thanks to the um, you know willingness and, and vision of the dean uh, at the college that I'm, I'm chatting with and, and the uh, faculty and administrators over there. So really good things coming up in the next, in the next five years, I think as far as what we'll be able to provide for first responders. Well, and that's good to hear. I mean, we've talked about the specialized training and, and services that we as first responders, we as cops can deliver to the consumers. But now it is nice to hear that uh, on the on the other side of that, uh, you know, the, the 180 degree of that, if you will, is that we as first responders will have specialized clinicians available to us, right? Because that's, I think that's what you want is you, you, maybe want to go to somebody that you can talk to who's kind of been through it all, you know, before, at least they, th that is the one thing that they focus on, right? It's, I would have to imagine that if you come back from Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria or wherever, and you've been a member of our military, uh, you probably don't want to go talk to uh, the same counselor who just before you was talking to an eight-year-old and just after you was going to go talk to, a, you know, going to go handle marriage counseling. Like you want somebody who is truly dedicated to working with, uh, uh, the group of, of people that you yourself are a part of. So I, that sounds great. I, I look forward to, to seeing, uh, seeing that come and, and made into action. Thank you. Yeah, it was really, really cool. I, I, I just, I'm excited about it because I think that uh, the, the population of, of uh, cops and first responders deserve that. You know, uh, as you know, one of the core things that I've heard from people over the years is I don't want to go talk to an EAP program. Because they, you know, they're taking care of people in public works and other areas of things that they have no clue what I do. They don't know what I do every day. Well, guess what? I do, you know, and, and I'm going to make sure that a whole other group of people know that, too. So that way, when uh, cops come in and other first responders, they're like, OK, this person gets it. They understand. Uh, and, and so I feel comfortable because it's about trust, right? Absolutely. It's about trust. How can I trust this person? And, um, and can they actually help me? Uh, you know, I've heard some pretty bad stories of therapists that, that had first responders come in. The first responder told them some trauma, traumatic stuff. And the counselors have told them, stop, stop. I, you're traumatizing me. I don't want to hear this. I'm like, this is unconscionable. I couldn't imagine any therapist, any therapist. I don't care if you don't specialize in it, saying a statement like that to, to an officer coming in telling you about their trauma. That is uh, that is awful, and so um, so we're going to fix that. We're going to fix it. 
And we're going to fix it from a university level. We're going to make sure that we have, this is not a, you know, a, a third party company in the community doing training like this. this. This is going to be legitimate. We're going to have a legitimate training program for people and a well-established program. So this is going to be good, bro. Good. Good to hear. And I imagine, I mean, there's seems to be there's so many more police officers that I talk to that psychology was a part of their educational background or they're going back to school for psychology. And as you said, my generation, you know, the the millennials and and the uh, the, uh, who comes after me, Gen Z, uh, is that maybe this isn't the, the career, right? Maybe this is you know, one more stepping stone to whatever comes next. And you get the cops who do spend five, 10 years in the job um, and they're going and getting their, you know, getting their educational background in psychology. And then they themselves can help, you know, they, they kind of get to get to remain in the family of law enforcement as it were, you know, they can leave law enforcement and, and come back at it from that, that clinical side and that mental health side. And they can truly look at somebody and say, no, I, I do understand because my biggest thing when I go out on the road, when I go out on a, on a, a mental health call and somebody, you know, says, tells me all the God awful things that they're experiencing, I see way too many people. And I think it's maybe just part of it's a communication error that is just, I think, ingrained in us. And, and in an effort to be active listeners, they, oh, I understand. No, you don't. <laughs> right. If you grew up upper middle class, right, like I did, you can't look at the lower middle class kid uh, who can't even freaking have shoelaces in his shoes because he's lost him or whatever. You know, maybe he doesn't even have shoes. You got no idea what that kid's going through. Uh, if you've never been a drug addict, you truly don't know what drug addicts are going through. If you've never mm-hmm. been married and you go to a domestic violence call between a married couple, do you really think that it's appropriate for you to sit there and go, I totally understand that your marriage of 35 years is falling apart. No, hell no. But uh, to be able to have these mental health professionals that dedicate their time toward first responders, toward law enforcement officers, and they themselves maybe were law enforcement officers at one point in time, uh, or at the very least, this is what I do day in and day out. You are the, the, the type of people that I speak with. You know, your job is, is important to me. That coming from a consumer standpoint, whereas I am the consumer in that case, um, makes me feel a whole lot better. I, I have that much more confidence uh, in that person's skills, abilities, and, and just their, their give a damn meter is, is that much, you know, pegged further over. So that's awesome, man. I, I look forward to seeing that implemented. I'm excited to see what the world holds for, for blue paths and, and for you as well. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Yeah. This is good stuff ahead for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so as we wind down here, I know it's your day off, your family's uh, at home there. I don't want to rob you of that precious family time uh, for too much longer. I do have one last question for you, Dr. Dara. You have a microphone to the world. What does the world need to hear from you? Well, you know, you talked about that defund the police movement that started, which was uh, so detrimental to a lot of people's psyches in law enforcement that who are trying every day to do the best that they can they strap on their boots, they get to work, they face being shot at work every single day. And I think I want the public to have compassion towards this field of service. Understanding that, you know, these are men and women who are not making a lot of money. Uh, you know, they're not gonna become rich from, from putting their lives on the line every single day to serve. Uh, I feel like communities now are so, 
I see this, you know, in the media, unfortunately, where we have so many entitled people that decide that they don't have to have respect for the, for the police. They don't have to have respect for teachers, for leaders, for elders. And where did we lose these morals? I just don't understand how we got to this place of losing respect for these people in authority that we always had respect for growing up, you know. Uh, it was ingrained in us. And I think that we need to refine these roots of getting respect back in our culture uh, to really start looking at these folks that are trying to make a positive difference. You know, when I was growing up, uh, I remember my dad, you know, I'm a person of color, right? So my dad, uh, um, for whatever is worth, but I grew up in Trinidad, guess what? 90, 95% of the people were people of color, right? So it, it didn't really make a difference to us. But he, he gave us this conversation. You get stopped by the police, you put both of your hands on his steering wheel, and you follow instructions. That's it, period. Don't go digging into your glove box. Don't go into the uh, armrest. You just sit put, and you just listen to instructions. And you be polite and respectful. We see so many interactions now where people are not following anything close to that. You know, uh, people are mouthy. From the moment you make a stop, there is always a passenger or the primary person who's pulling out a cell phone to tape every single interaction. What the heck is going on? You know, like this is this is ridiculous. And people complain about the professionalism of police. Now, yeah, in every single profession, psychology, police, you're going to have people that shouldn't probably not be in that profession. That is the truth. It doesn't matter what profession you're in, right? Uh, but it doesn't mean that we should broad brush everybody as being negative or awful. Uh, there are a lot more excellent people in every profession who really love their professions that are trying to provide a public service. And, um, and I would love for the community to step back and, and I'd love for PIOs to do more. I'd like for PIOs in every department and every agency to let the public know of the good stuff that they do, as opposed to us just seeing negative clips online, you know, of, of OISs that people get involved in. There are a lot of greater things that are taking place on a day-to-day -day basis. There are conversations like you described, where you're standing on the, on the asphalt for three hours, chatting with somebody, trying to help them see, you know, that there is a better day ahead, and that to, to get some hope and to stay alive because you know, their family needs them, their kids, their loved ones. Um, we have so many more of those interactions happening every day from excellent officers um, and other first responders in the field. So I want the officers to keep their heads up. I want them to realize why uh, they are doing their job. You know, uh, service is so important. And I, I thank all of our officers for the work that they do. Even the ones that may have lost their way and, and they're feeling disheartened in their job, pull back to center, uh, join the tribe, rejoin the tribe, and, uh, and and realize that, you know, you make a difference in the community. And I really appreciate you, Kevin, and, and what you're doing to help get these types of messages out. Um, I think that, you know, it's just so important. So thank you for, for doing this. Of course, and thank you for coming on. And to all the to all our cops and first responders listening, if you need help, uh, uh, go go and find somebody who who can get you that help. I mean the the services are out there. If you're in Arizona, you know find find Doctor Rampersand. Oh, I I almost I wanted to give you the opportunity. Where can people find you on online or on social media? Well, sure, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn on Facebook. Uh, uh, I have a presence on that. I, I have a Twitter account, but I never really use it. Um, 
And then, uh, honestly speaking, my cell phone, I published that to the world. It's 602-345-1425. On my challenge coin that I have for Blue Paz, uh, it says no one walks alone in Latin. And I truly mean that. You know, you need anything, you're never alone. You text me or you call me, uh, we'll be able to to help you somehow. Um, I don't worry about money up front. I think money is a byproduct of of doing your passion, right? Like it'll come. Uh, if people need help, call or text. That's more important. We'll study the rest of that stuff afterwards, you know. Uh, you can also go to my website uh, at www.bluepaz.com, and, um and you can reach out to me or, or anybody on my team. We'll, we'll be there to help. Excellent. And that is, uh, that is a, a service that Dr. Dara provides. And, uh, and certainly if you are at the, uh, the administrative level or in charge of training for your agency, reach out to Dr. Dara and see, uh, what he can offer you as well. Uh, so he's got a truly a multifaceted approach. So again, sir, thank you for, for coming on, uh, coming on the show. I greatly appreciate your time. Uh, and again, taking, taking this hour and 15 minutes or so away from, uh, away from your family. Uh, I'll let you get back to it. So thank you again, sir. Uh, And to everybody out there, stay safe and we'll see you on the road. 